0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. I'm holding a book in my hand right now, a beautiful book, slim and unassuming, but as dense and rich as liquid gold. It feels great to hold it, actually, and it's even better to read. It's rare that I read nonfiction with the same pace I give to poetry. If I like a book of poetry, I can read it in an hour or two. Why not just zip through them and see what's there? If I love a book of poetry, it overwhelms me. I can't take too much of it at once. I have to spend as much time thinking about a poem, or sometimes even a line of a poem, before I can take more in. Can't move on from one to the next. I have to stop, set it down, think about it. It is very, very rare that essays work like this for me, but this book does. It's called Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. It's a wonderful book by a wonderful author, Farrah Jasmine Griffin. She joins us today on The History of Literature. <laughs> We go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. What a great, great episode we have for you today. First up, we're going to have part two of our talk with Scott Carter. Scott has written a play called Discord, the gospel according to Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Count Leo Tolstoy. All three of those historical figures wrote their own version of the New Testament. And in, in today's installment, we will hear how and why Dickens put together his version. Let's just say that he's no Thomas Jefferson. I think when you hear this one, especially if you heard the last one, our last installment, you will think, what a great idea for a play. Putting these three in a room together and letting them hash it out. Where can I see it? Well, hopefully it will come to a theater near you soon. And if you're listening to this episode in 2021, you can check out the streaming version put out by Philadelphia's Lantern Theater Company. Speaking of Philadelphia, after we talk to Scott, we will talk with Philadelphian Farrah Jasmine Griffin. I guess she's a New Yorker now, professor at Columbia, and a profound scholar. Elizabeth Alexander, the poet, says that this book, quote, gives us Farrah Jasmine Griffin in full and mighty sail, keen cultural analysis, storytelling, and gorgeous lyricism combine in this book that makes a genre of its own. End quote. And she says, this book is a talking book, a teaching book, and a treasure. I wholeheartedly agree. I know there are books out there, anthologies, chronologies, that focus on aspects of literature that might be overlooked or underrepresented. They march us through one by one. Here's an author. There's an author. Here's another author. Those are valuable. Those are valuable books. They help fill in gaps. They open our eyes. This book takes a different approach. This book gives us Farah's own story. Things that happened to her, things she's learned, moments in her life that are burgeoning with meaning. Sometimes those are searing and painful. Sometimes they're joyous. Sometimes they're deeply contemplative. We also get her life as a reader, what she's encountered along the way, The profundity of it all. Quick asterisk or parentheses, not just a reader, but someone who's living. Food, music, lots more than just books. And she's organized it not just by year. 1780, we get this. 1820, we get that. 1910, we get this. But by thematic topic. The transformative potential of love. The quest for justice. I don't want to step on what that does for us as readers, or why she chose to do it that way, because she and I will discuss it when she comes on. But I will just say this. As a reader, I found myself reading these chapters the way I read poetry. I would read a few sentences, stop, admire, and think. I was fully engaged emotionally and intellectually. That's what I look for in literature. That's what I hope to get from literature. And so when I find it in a book that's about literature, it is win-win for me. I'm fully alert, inspired, moved. That's this book. It calls forth all my powers. Highly recommended. Speaking of alert and inspired, Charles Dickens was a pretty alert and inspired fellow. The energy of that guy, what a dynamo. Let's take a quick break and let Scott Carter tell us all about how that electric personality found an outlet in a revised gospel. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat Cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat Cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Scott Carter, author of the new play Discord, who last joined us to talk about Thomas Jefferson and the gospel he prepared. Today we're going to focus on another gospel by a famous figure in literature, Charles Dickens. Scott Carter, welcome back to the History of Literature.
1: Always a pleasure, Jack.
0: So before I read your play, I had heard about Jefferson's gospel and the razor blades that he had taken to the, the his copy of the Bible, and I had heard about Tolstoy's, but I did not know that Dickens had done something similar where was Charles Dickens in his spiritual life or his literary life, whatever you however you want to look at it, his biography, when he sought to create a new gospel?
1: His wife had given birth to five of what were eventually ten children mm-hmm. in his family. He's still a relatively young man, and he writes this gospel, not for the public, he writes it for his children.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh.
1: And he writes it for them, and recites it so often to them that growing up, they could recite it before they learned to read.
0: Wow. So what was he getting at? Was he just looking? Did he know that as a storyteller, he could do a better job of making it a lively story? Or were there religious underpinnings to what he was trying to do?
1: Well, there are religious underpinnings to what he's trying to do. But what's most revealing about Dickens' Gospel is how dickensish it is <laughs> where where jefferson wants to get rid of all of the miracles that's what dickens loves oh yeah the dickens's favorite word in the english language was fancy yeah and he wanted things to be embroidered and he wanted them to be embellished and that's <laughs> what his gospel is some of it you can even hear him talking to his kids because he's saying things like you know, and in a desert, there was an, a camel. I think I took you to the zoo once and showed you what a camel looks like. Do you remember mm, that? Yeah. But he completely embraces all, all of this, all yeah. of the miracles. And so his is the most traditional of the three interpretations in the play. His is by far the most traditional. And I had not heard of this before until I was in my neighborhood independent bookstore and in the classic book section, I just saw this spine that said, The Life of Our Lord by Charles Dickens. And I'd never heard of this book before. And I'd already started working with Jefferson as a possible figure for a play to be describing what he was doing with the Gospels and what he believed. And then I re- then I took this book down, bought it, and then I realized, oh, Dickens is the exact opposite of Jefferson. Yeah, right. And And so here's something, not only— Difference in uh, completely different in theological beliefs, but they're completely different personalities. Mm. That Jefferson abhorred public speech. Mm. Yeah, Dickens' first ambition was to be an actor and was very theatrical, even for his whole life. For his entire life, he yeah. gave over 300 solo readings from his works, and many people think that it hastened his early death at the age of 56. Because when he would do readings, he would pour himself into them so much, especially (laughs) the scene from Oliver Twist of Bill Sykes killing Nancy. And also, Dickens was a mesmerist. And so when he was performing in an auditorium, he would keep the gas lights up a little bit because he wanted to be able to look into everyone's eyes because he had a certain notion that he was going to be mass hypnotizing the audience. Yeah. Furthermore he designed and built his own special podium to his height so that he could rest his elbow and there was a place to put the book and a place to put his water. And then he also had a background, a scrim. So so if you saw Dickens in New York and you saw him in London, and you saw him in San Francisco, you'd see the exact same setting each time. He traveled with this yeah. because he wanted to control every aspect of his performance.
0: Right. Now, did he think that the gospels did he just think well this is something we all should believe was he casual about christianity and and then thought but i can make it a better story or was he thinking i really want people to believe this more and if i can do anything to help make that happen i'm going to do it
1: i think it's closest to the second yeah and i would say my explanation for the the depths of dickens's feeling about christianity goes back to his childhood as compared to the other two jefferson and tolstoy the other two characters in my play had everything that a society could give someone right they were both male they were both firstborn yeah. they were both in upper Wealthy. class families yeah. tolstoy was a, was titled they had the ability to travel They had the ability to be educated. They had the ability to own property. They had the ability to buy books. And so every single thing that the world could have given someone at that moment, they had at birth. Dickens, on the other hand, was born into a lower middle class setting. His father was a naval clerk. And then he was a big spender, lost it all, and the family went into a, a debtor's prison. Yeah. And Charles was removed from school his older sister was not she they let her stay in, the mother let her stay in school and dickens said later i never trusted my mother again mm. he was sent to a factory where he had to work and save whatever pennies they paid him because he was trying to buy his family's freedom back and just before he was sent to this little hovel with a single candle in it his father saw on the sidewalk some books that had been thrown away and took them with the young Charles to this little room, this one little room where he stayed. And so he read over and over and over the Arabian Nights and Robinson Crusoe and Don Quixote and the Bible. Mm. And then you have to remember that by the time that he's 21, 22, he's becoming one of the most famous authors in the UK and then later the world. And so the notion of miracles which I think is seen as something naive by a Jefferson or a Tolstoy, is seen by Dickens as being very similar to his own life. Uh, the, the, yeah. the, the fairy tales where someone like an, an Aladdin is given access to a magical underground kingdom of jewels and is able to then become uh, go from being an impoverished slave to being a wealthy man, this is not unlike how Dickens thought of his own life. Mm. That's
0: interesting. That's not where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought where we were headed was, you were going to say, because of his impoverished background and because of the bleakness that he had lived through, he needed something to hope for. He needed there to be some light somewhere, and he needed Christianity or the miracles of Christianity as something to help keep him afloat.
1: Well, well, I think that was true when he was a child.
0: yeah. But then
1: the miracle of his quick, instantaneous success.
2: Yeah, right.
1: You know, it was like the Beatles coming to America. Yeah. Just instantly, everybody loved him. Yeah,
0: and instantly having wealth and and being able to do things for a lot of other people.
1: Yes, he never lost that. In fact, the, the first inspiration for Christmas Carol was the image from the very end of the novella where the ghost of Christmas yet to be has underneath his cloak two children, one is want and one is ignorance. And Dickens was a, also like Jefferson and Tolstoy, all three were proponents of uh, of universal education. All, all three actively worked for that in their own countries. But the notion of children suffering undeserved misfortune is something that never left him. Right. Do you think that
0: he thought the Bible was fiction, in a sense? I'm thinking of something like A Christmas Carol, where he's inventing three, or it's actually four ghosts, and telling the story that way, but can kind of believe that it could be true, or believe that it is true, or believe that it's important to help people see the values that he wants them to see or the lessons he wants them to take or just feel the kind of experience he wants them to feel at christmas time do you think he saw the miracles in the bible as being something similar and that's why he felt like he could amplify them in a way or do you think he viewed them as literal and just not very well told or just you know that he could heighten it
1: i don't know that he didn't think the bible was well told because the King James version of the Bible, which is the one that he would have used, all three of them actually worked off of it. Tolstoy worked off the translation of the King James. Uh, there's a lot to admire about the language th- th- written during the, the time of Shakespeare and Ben Jonson and so many others. The the work that was produced in the King James Bible is admired by so many. I don't know that he would have thought that he needed to to correct the language. I think more that he did a gospel for his children, to put it all in one story, the same way that Jefferson wanted to put it all into one mm. story rather than mm-hmm. four, st- four stories. Yeah. So I think there's that, and and I don't I don't know exactly the answer to your question, but all I can say is that it meant a lot to him to to do this ultimate version of the Gospels and to be passing this truth on to his children. Yeah. Where where Jefferson did Jefferson didn't celebrate Christmas. Jefferson didn't celebrate his own birthday nor his children's. He only celebrated July Fourth and New Year's Day, mm. and and so he he didn't continue on some of the sentimental traditions. Whereas Dickens loved all those, he loved all that, and 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 for many people he yeah. is the the inventor of right. of Christmas celebration. <laughs> right, right, and also in his novels, things occur like I think it's in Old Curiosity Shop or is it in. In one of them, someone dies by spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous combustion, combustion, sure. (laughs) You know, and and he was a mesmerist. So he believed he had some notion. I mean, the notion of Mesmer, of Dr. Mesmer, was that the blood that flows through our bodies is not unlike the movement of the waves of the oceans Hmm. that are pulled back and forth by by the moon. And that certain metals passed over the body could then increase circulation and ward off disease. So he believed things like this. Hmm. And it was also a time in the Industrial Revolution, it was a time of a great outburst of inventiveness right, by human right, beings.
0: Right. Miracles were happening, and, Mir- and
1: miracles were happening, yeah. and, and steam engines and the print, you know, mm-hmm. uh, j- the locomotive and all, just all sorts of things to the point where he may have been asking himself, why not?
2: Right.
0: So I think anyone who heard our discussion of Jefferson, which we had previously, will automatically think how exciting it's going to be to see the two of these people in the same room. How would you say that Jefferson and Tolstoy thought of what what did they think of dickens in your play do they see him as charismatic as dangerous as a blowhard or what what's their general attitude toward him
1: well remember that they live at different times mm-hmm. so tolstoy knows of dickens all oh, right. right and in fact went to see him once and before he would start any of his own books he would read read a book of dickens right and he called Dickens his favorite Christian author. Right. Now, Jefferson would have not have known of Dickens and would have been just abashed by him. Yeah. He would have been astounded that that someone is so I mean, he Jefferson talked in his own lifetime, he talked about someone like Patrick Henry, who was a great orator, and Jefferson disagreed with him on most things. But that Jefferson had some sort of envy or resentment of someone for whom words came so easily and and someone who could hold an audience's attention for an hour and a half or two hours. Jefferson did not have that skill. Well, Dickens did. And Dickens was also doing this for money. He did two tours of America, numerous tours of the UK, and that's increasing the sales of his books and uh, making him extremely wealthy. And all of that is completely out of the, Jefferson's imagination could not believe in a character like that. Right. And there's a alpha dominance that Dickens tries to assert over Jefferson. Jefferson often can be like a jujitsu artist. Right. And use another person's energy against them. Mm. Yeah. So so Dickens, I see as, you know, the character that John Barrymore played in 20th century, Oscar Jaffe. Mm-hmm. I see him as a combination of that. And Cyrano de Bergerac and Emile Zola because the social conscience always was an extremely important part of Dickens's character.
0: Right. Okay. Well, now I am very excited to hear about the third leg of the stool we're going to get coming up with Tolstoy, but we'll save that for another day. The play is called Discord. The author is Scott Carter. It's streaming from November 4th through December 19th at the Philadelphia Lantern Theater. Scott Carter, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: It is my pleasure, Jack.
2: There we go.
0: Wasn't that great? And don't you want to know where Tolstoy fits in? We will have that for you soon. And now our special guest today, Farrah Jasmine Griffin. We'll have our conversation with her
2: after this.
0: Okay, joining me now is Farrah Jasmine Griffin, who was called, quote, one of the few great intellectuals in our time, end quote, by Dr. Cornel West. She's here to talk about her new work, Read Until You Understand, the profound wisdom of Black life and literature, which pays homage to family and community through generations of Black geniuses. Farrah Jasmine Griffin, welcome to the History of Literature.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So you write that this book begins with a girl and ends with grace. But let's start with the girl and her father. What was your childhood like, and how did your father introduce you to the world of literature?
3: Well, you know, my childhood, I, was, I had an older sister, but she was significantly older, so it was like I was the only child. Mm. I think for her, it was like she was the only child, too, so we were both doted upon.
2: <laughs>
3: um, and my father was a voracious reader. There were books all over the house, and he—you know he taught me how to read. And he used to read to me at night and take me to the library once a week, and I could get my books. And so spending time with my father, I associated with books, Mm. bookstores, libraries, reading, reading together. I grew into a reader of what we call, think of when we think of literature. My father... Read some novels, but mostly he read nonfiction. He was very much a nonfiction reader. And so I always feel like the, the reading and the love of books I got from him, but the kind of passion for literary works is what I came to on my own.
0: Right. And people might think he was a a professor or something. He was actually a welder in a shipyard.
3: Exactly. He was not a professor at all, although I think he could have been. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I think that he was a very, very gifted teacher. All the children in my family, you know, for generations attribute him with being the person who taught us how to read and write and things like that. Um, But he was a working class man he was a welder who always had a paperback book in his back pocket and would sometimes get in trouble at work for reading yeah <laughs> believe it or not and, yeah
0: it sounds like his his great passion was for documents about america
3: yes very much so. I think that a lot of that had to do with his own education. You know, he was probably starting school in the early elementary school years during the Depression as a Philadelphia schoolboy, and always had a real passion for early American history, mm-hmm. for the Declaration of Independence, all those documents, and then critiques of those documents. And I actually think his passion was it inter- was history. You know, really, that's what he really loved.
2: Right, right.
0: And then he died tragically when you were nine, and the story that you tell of that in your book is very moving, and it sounds as though his spirit came to guide your reading after that.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that whether it's, you know— If someone did a kind of psychoanalysis of me, it would be something in my psyche, in my subconscious, the kind of voice of my father that continued to live. And if you did a more spiritual reading, you know, it might be not a ghost, but a presence, whatever it was. You know, I think it was just a girl longing for her father Mm. and seeking him in books, you know, knowing that that's where they could meet was in books. And so he left a house full of books, you know, uh, full of paperback books of every kind. And I would just read them when I had a chance to do so.
0: Yeah. And he had you memorize the preamble of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Gettysburg Address. But can you share with us the story of the book's title, Read Until You Understand?
3: Yes, of course. I, I said that he, he loved paperback books. He had a lot of them. And there were two paperback books. I remember when we bought one of them from Robin's Bookstore in Philadelphia. But there were two. One is called Black Struggle. Mm. And it was kind of a survey, kind of survey of African-American history. And this would have been like late 60s, early 70s, when we got more of those kinds of books. And the other one was a book of quotations by famous Americans. And, you know, my father wrote notes to me in those books and they were in, um, actually, they were written in lead pencil. Mm. And in Black Struggle, he wrote, read this until you understand. You may not understand it first, but read it until you understand. Mm. And then the later on, you know, read and understand, baby. And he says, if you, if you don't, ask your teacher. And then in the other one, the quotations, he would write like in little sections. He'd say, "Start here. There's lots of Frederick Douglass um, <laughs> to read." And so I kept those books. I mean, I had them. He gave them to me, yeah. And they were important. But after he died, they became like you know like heirlooms.
2: Yeah. And they right.
3: Could, so the title actually comes from a note from my father.
0: Yeah, it is really something. I mean, people who go through something like that, they they cling to those words, and, and maybe they've been told, you know, take care of your mother, or, you know, I right. want you to go to college, or something like that. For you, it was, these are works that are important for you, but also kind of suggesting they're they're deeper than they might seem at first.
3: Yes. Exactly. Right. And I think I you know, at the time when I was a girl I thought, just read this book and understand it. But throughout my life I realized that read until you understand is actually a process. You know. It's that we're always if 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 we're gonna read until we understand, that means we're gonna read until the day we die.
2: (laughs) Right, right. We're
3: just gonna constantly be seeking understanding. It's not a destination. You know. Right.
0: Well, I can tell you, uh, I told you this a little bit before we started recording here, but there are things that I feel like I've come to understand for the first time since starting to go through your book. And so that's sort of a testament I've been reading for, I guess, 45 years or something now, but I'm still just understanding things uh, based on different readings of things and having different guides to help me understand the things that I've read.
3: Wow. Wow. That that's, that says a lot. And it it's um, very meaningful to me because, you know, you write a book and you don't know how it will be received, but to hear that someone is learning, which is also what I wanted this book to, to do. I wanted it to offer people the opportunity to perhaps learn some things that they didn't know or shift the way they think about some things. So... You just have proven to be an ideal reader.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So you also make the case that there is something particular about black life and literature where I guess I would say black writers are in a particular position and have always held that position of being able to see things maybe in a way that white Americans would not have been able to see. And I, I think... Your father also, I think you said, uh, he exposed me to our nation's founding fathers and the ideals they espoused, so I would understand the enormity of their transgression, the enormity of the betrayal. So it's sort of like a bearing witness to the promise and hypocrisy of the nation.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the consistent things that we see in Literature by black americans and and you use the right word it 's bearing witness
2: mm. and
3: it 's bearing witness to the potential
2: mm-hmm. you know
3: to the ideals as they were articulated and to you know a, an expressing um, a kind of reverence for the language in which they were expressed, and at the same time because of their own station, seeing that all men are created equal didn 't mean them right you know liberty and justice for all didn 't mean them, and so You know, these are very rare individuals because it was illegal for most enslaved people to read or write. So the ones who did read or write saw that as an opportunity and also a responsibility to bear witness, to hold the nation to its ideals, and really to push, you know, to kind of push the nation toward meeting those ideals. And that's true from... Phyllis Wheatley, to Frederick Douglass, to Ralph Ellison, to James Baldwin, I mean, throughout the centuries of the writing. Yeah,
0: so let's talk about the book's organization, because it is interesting. You don't present this as a chronology, which maybe people might expect. Okay, let's start with the first, and you organize it instead by topic, so each chapter... Covers a particular area, and then you can roam from. You could start with Phyllis Wheatley, but you can also include Toni Morrison, or you can include whoever is illuminating something about that particular concept. So what gave you that idea? Did that come out of teaching or what made you want to organize your book in that way?
3: Yeah. So in some ways, I mean, not that the topics themselves didn't come so much out of teaching, but the wanting to juxtapose Mm, writers from different times did. And it was for that very reason that we just spoke about, because I wanted to show that there was a kind of deep lineage to this thought and that you know, this is something that Phyllis Wheatley considered in the eighteenth century, and then, look, Morrison returns to it in the 21st century, and how does she compare if we you know, how do we read Morrison differently if we sit her next to Wheatley? How do we read Wheatley differently if we know that she's projecting toward a Morrison? And so yeah. that's, that does come from teaching, because I find myself, even when I'm teaching chronologically. In right. my lectures, i 'm going <laughs> back and forth, like wait until we get to you know yeah, so that that's what, in terms of the sort of internal structures, I wanted people to be able to see that things that seem like they just happen to appear to us and become important might actually have an intellectual heritage that goes much more deeply. The yeah. topics themselves kind of emerged on their own in a kind of organic way. I did mm. teach a course on African-American novelists and the concept of justice. Mm. So that did come out of my teaching. But the other ones, I think, came out of my living. Yeah. You know, right. And they were these sorts of principles that I kept seeing over and over again. And initially, when I started the book, I thought I was going to be writing about the way these writers... Talked about democratic principles. Mm. But as I began to read more, I realized that it wasn't only democracy was important, but there were really these values that transcend nation, you know, (laughs) that every religious tradition has has tried to engage, and that the literature itself also tried to engage them. So then it became about mercy and grace, beauty and joy. Yeah.
0: yeah. And death and love and rage mm-hmm. and resistance. And I, right. I I, I, sort of wish we could do this as 10 episodes because they, <laughs> <laughs> they fit so naturally. But I really want to focus on mercy today. And mm-hmm. let's start with mercy. And again, we start with Phyllis Wheatley. I did a, an episode on Phyllis Wheatley and I was just sort of blown away by how much is there, how much there is for us to consider, and how much mm-hmm. thematically she sets on the table for us. So how does, I mean, the very first line of her most famous poem is, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land."
3: That's right. Uh, so That's right. H-
0: how did she open the door to mercy for you?
3: Well, you know, I, I've always been interested in her,
2: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
3: because she's a fascinating, fascinating figure. And then that line, I kept returning to it, you know, Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land." And it's the line that has made the, that poem so controversial throughout the years, you know? Yeah. And so for me, instead of the controversy, it raised the question, you know, like reading does often raise the question that haunted me. So I thought... <sighs> What does she mean? Twas mercy brought her from her pagan land. So right. Africa in this poem is a pagan land, and mercy is an you know it's a gift. <laughs> like, yeah. So how do you say your enslavement was mercy? Now I learned through study that that was an argument about the slave trade that the slave trade introduced pagans to Christianity, and so initially it sounds like okay Wheatley has. She's brought into that. She's brought into that hmm. logic.
0: Right, right. right? Which that, is um, why she's criticized, because people say, well, exactly. p- pagan land is Africa and mercy. Right. You're just adopting the religion of your owners, your oppressors. And so this, this just shows that, that Phyllis Wheatley is sort of co-opted.
3: Exactly. She's co-opted. She's brainwashed. <laughs> she's all of those things. Yeah, And so for me, it was just like, OK, what does mercy mean?
2: Yeah. Like, what, you know,
3: what, what are the meanings of mercy? And then reading that poem closely, you see what she does with it. She, you know, where, okay, she's saying, okay, it was mercy that brought me here. I'm going to follow that logic.
2: Yeah. It was
3: mercy that brought me here. It was mercy that introduced—so then I was introduced to Christ, and I am a Christian. And now that I'm a Christian, I'm equal to you. Yeah. Using your own logic, I'm equal to you. You know, that that in God's eye, I too can join the angelic train. And it's just small, condensed. It does what the best poetry does. Yeah. You know, it sort of flips us on <laughs> our back and turns us back over and all of those things.
2: Yeah. But for
3: me it was also a chance to study mercy. Like what a right. theologian said about mercy, right? Like what is mercy?
0: Right. Well, before we get there, let me just say that Wheatley even I think even nudges it a little further which is to say I'll be a Christian like you we will be equals in that sense except that you're more hypocritical than I am you're not being yes. Christian i can i can exactly. out-Christian you and it's part of exactly. that that black tradition of truth to power
3: right That's Exactly what she does, right? Yeah, she says, yeah. you know, that line where she says, "Remember, Christians." Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> let let me just remind you of your own religion. You know, right, right. But yes, exactly. And she initiates that right there early on.
0: Mm. Okay, so let's talk about mercy. And I think the the definition that I have been revolving around in my head, or the quotation I have been revolving around in my head, since I picked up your book is one I was not familiar with uh, from Natasha Mm Dayone. And it's, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting the bad you deserve. Grace (laughs) is getting a good thing even when you don't deserve it. (laughs) right? And it just opened up these doors for me in considering mercy and how we use that term, and how often it doesn't really fit with what we're trying to use it for.
3: Absolutely. I think a lot of times people mean grace when they use mercy. Right. And mercy, you know, and there's also, there's there's mercy of God. There's God's yeah. mercy. Right. Which, you know, we deserve to be punished and God doesn't punish us. That's God's mercy.
0: Right. Which makes, that makes a kind of conceptual sense. If you accept that God is all yes. powerful and all good and has the right to judge and the right to spare, right. and you accept that humans are all sinners and always deserve yes. punishment, then God's right. mercy is it it has a kind of logical coherence. But when you get to the exactly. world of humans, it it's almost like a, a paradox you call it the question of mercy, I think. Yeah. It, it falls is, apart. Right? Yeah. Because
3: it falls apart. And it's also you know, because the other definition, you know, like I read alongside with the Oxford English Dictionary next to me. My, you know, I love uh, looking it up and then looking at all the diction- all the meanings.
0: Do you have the compact so, uh, version with the little? Uh, both. With the little I have magnifying the, glass. Yes, I have the
2: magnifying. <laughs> glass I love it.
1: Right? Yeah, me too.
0: And,
3: me you too. Know, yeah. so, you know, that's just a a joy to read. Is you know, so then that other definition of mercy is what human beings have for each other. Hmm. That if you are in a position of power or authority where you could punish or do someone harm, and you choose not to. Right. And that became the definition that I was really invested in. Yeah. You know, at what point do, are people in the position to grant mercy, and then they do or they don't,
2: right.
3: you know, and what's the price of that? Um, so, you know, it's just it's a chance to just play around and play in the definitions, the various definitions of God's mercy. Mercy is practiced by humans. On the one hand, it is about not receiving punishment you deserve. On the other hand, it might simply be you're, you're powerless, and someone who has right. power and authority right. to do you harm chooses not to do so. Right. Which is a fascinating yeah. use of the word.
0: Yeah. So, like, if, if, if we're talking about a judge who is sentencing a criminal who has done wrong, mm-hmm. and the judge says, I will show mercy and give you a lighter sentence, that might conceptually fit. But if we're talking yeah. about, for example, a slave owner who is beating a slave and then decides, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's enough. We might look at that and say, oh, he showed mercy. But that's mm-hmm. not right, because that's right. basically assuming that the person who is being oppressed has done something wrong. And exactly. in fact, it's the other way around. So It's, it's the other kind way of, around. Yeah. So it's like... Our understanding of that as mercy just completely gets the power dynamic all messed up.
3: You're so right. I mean I think that's that's where the twist became for me, right? So the twist yeah. for me is like, what did this little African child do that she needed mercy? Right. And isn't it the people who enslaved her who needed mercy? Yeah. You know? And right. isn't her very presence and desire for them to experience freedom and grace isn't that an act of mercy? Like her very existence, right? where she is existing, not wanting revenge, you know, but wanting her freedom, but also your freedom. That's mercy.
0: Right, but here's the problem, and you, you talk about this. Everything I'm, I'm saying today, it sounds like I'm being smart, <laughs> but it's because I've learned this all from you, just in these 10 or 12 pages that I've read. So the problem with that is that the person, like the little slave girl, has no power. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, well, you know, mercy, the first part of the definition is someone with power who who either, uh, you know, decides not to give you the bad that you deserve. So the question then is, is the power a kind of moral authority or is the 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 person who is oppressed the only person who can absolve that person of their guilt? Are they sort of a stand in for God and saying, you know, I will absolve you of your sins. I'm the only one who can do it because I was the one you oppressed. But it it kind of breaks down because the power doesn't really shift. It still stays it doesn't with, shift. Yeah. And so that's why humans can't really, like, that's why our concept of mercy is all messed up, because it's the powerful are often the people who actually are the ones who deserve the punishment.
3: Exactly. Deserve the punishment and then benefit from the mercy. (laughs)
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) So, no,
3: you're so right. And I think that's the conundrum that we see in a lot of African-American literature. You know, so Charles Chestnut has this Mm, extraordinary novel, The Marrow of Tradition, and it's the oppressed person in the moment of, you know, the more powerful person who has a need that the oppressed person can then grant them, right, yeah. is the one who's acting merciful. And yet the novel shows that that oppressed person does not get what she deserves. She doesn't get, you know, she doesn't get financial rewards. She doesn't get, you know, the, the people who have been slain in her family. She doesn't get them back. And yet... She has to act mercifully so that we don't end up with this kind of, um, you know, retributive justice, Mm. you know, so that things are possible. I think James Baldwin, in the letter that he writes to his nephew, says the same thing. He's like, you know, white people don't have to accept you. You know, they don't have to prove your humanity. You already have your humanity. The real difficult thing, he says to his nephew, is that you have to accept them and accept them with love. Mm. So I think it's a... It's, it's a conundrum throughout, and I think that if you leave that chapter with more questions than answers, yeah. <laughs> then it's done what it's supposed to do.
0: Right. Well, let me tell you the thing that I felt like I understood for the first time, and it's something that has haunted me since I was about eight or nine years old. So let's now that we have all the concepts of mercy out on the table, let's see if we can apply it to this scenario. So I was eight or nine. So it's funny because when we when I did the episode on Phyllis Wheatley, I talked all about Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. But this time when I read your chapter, I had a different Jefferson who came to mind, which is George Jefferson. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So I don't know if you watch the show The Jeffersons. Yes. And Uh I feel, (laughs) you know, when I say things like this, I always say, "Well, I have a lot of international listeners, so I'll explain." But what (laughs) I'm what I'm what I'm trying to avoid saying is it makes me feel a little old because I I'm not sure people under the age of thirty will be as familiar right, exactly. as I am. Get
3: it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been rerun, it's in syndication, yeah. so okay. maybe they
0: do. <laughs> so George Jefferson, for anyone who doesn't know, he was part of the Archie Bunker world. It was a spin-off from the Archie Bunker show, which was a show about a white bigot who was living in Queens and george jefferson was kind of set up as the foil and he was kind of the right. reverse of archie bunker and so and then he was also successful and then the jeffersons when that show came out it was george and his wife and they moved to the upper east side and they lived in this high rise mm-hmm. so there was an episode of this and i was watching this you know just as a as a kid it would it would come on in the summer mornings in reruns mm-hmm. you know after The Price is Right or whatever. And it was before the soap operas. So it was sort of the last thing I got to watch before I had to find something else to do. So I was watching this episode and there was an episode where George took a CPR class. And then later in the episode, his friend Willis accidentally took George to uh, an apartment, a renter's meeting, but it turned out that it was uh, being run by a couple of members of the KKK
2: mm-hmm.
0: who had moved into their building. And they, they find out, and they're horrified that what happens. But before they can storm out of the meeting, there's a father and son who are running this meeting. And the father starts to choke, or he has a stroke. And mm-hmm. he uh, is about to die. And George is the only one who knows CPR and can save him.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so he has this moment where he has to decide, you know, and we've just seen this guy saying these horrible things to George right. and they've just had this argument. And all of a sudden, George's things have shifted. Now George is, is sort of there and he's the only one who can save him. So after mm-hmm. a moment where he hesitates, he jumps up and he gives him mouth to mouth resuscitation. And the man is uh, revived And Mm -hmm. he's then taken off on a stretcher and his son now has had sort of a change of heart. And he says to his father, I want you to know that this is the man who saved your life. Mm -hmm. And the man looks and sees that it's George and he says, you should have let me die.
3: Yeah, yeah. And,
0: yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of that that 70s sitcom where they can do really powerful episodes. <laughs> you know you, right. know, you wouldn't expect right. it now, but it was like and it just yeah. floored me. And I think for a long time, the reason why it resonated with me is I thought that man is so full of hate and and physical disgust that he mm-hmm. and and probably homophobia, he can't stand mm-hmm. the idea that. George's lips touched his lips.
3: Touched his. Yeah.
0: And I'm sure that was, you know, there's a big part of it. But when I read your chapter, I thought, you know, it's also this reversal of mercy that it's Mm -hmm. this man is saying, I don't want to like George had to decide in that moment. Right. He had to decide this man deserves to die. There's no question. Mm-hmm. He's a, mm-hmm. a, a, a filthy racist and he's right. you know, deserves to die. And I will show him mercy and save his life. And right. I feel now like like a lot of the dynamic there was the man waking up and saying, I don't wanna live in a world where I don't have the power to decide. Right. I don't want to be in a world where where a black man has the power over me to decide mm-hmm. whether or not to give me mercy.
3: Right, life or death. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, that that episode of the Jeffersons, you know, I'd forgotten all about this, but I think that you're so right, especially because it's Norman Lear and he's, you know, yeah. using those um Comedy sitcoms to, to make a point, but I think that it's something that, you know, I'll, I'll let your listeners know. One of my favorite poems is a poem by the great poet Gwendolyn Brooks, yeah. and it's called Negro Hero, mm. and it's inspired by Dory Miller. Dory Miller was in the Navy, the segregated Navy, and he was like a messman, you know, he, he worked in the dining services on the ship. He was at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and he ran up and he ran on the deck and he used one of the ship's guns to shoot down one of the Japanese planes.
2: Yeah.
3: So Gwendolyn Brooks writes this poem, Negro Hero, and she's like, you know, inspired by or for Dory Miller, and she writes it in his voice. And it's almost, it resonates so well with what you just shared, because he says, you know, you know basically i had to drag you kicking and screaming to save your life oh, you know right. that i'm not even allowed to fight in this war as an equal person right because mm. it's still a segregated army i for a segregated country you know in, in that poem he says something like drowning men will often take down the people who try to save them but it's so much of that moment you know and you were reminded that at this period when he's when she's writing about him this is a time when blood banks are segregated. Mm-hmm. You know, some places in the South, you could be a dying white person, but if the only blood that was available is blood to save your life is the blood of a black person because it's segregated and we have these crazy notions of what race is, you don't get that blood.
2: Yeah,
0: and and uh, I think Brooks's line is, In a southern city, a white man said, Indeed, I'd rather be dead. Indeed, I'd rather be shot in the head or ridden to waste on the back of a flood than saved by the drop of a black man's blood.
3: There you go. And that's exactly... There you go. That's exactly what exactly what you're, you described with the George Jefferson moment, you know, and I think that, you know, the lesson that, that Lear is giving, and I think that for many African-American artists is, okay, this man is a bigot. And, you know, there are some people who said you should have let him die. I would have let him die. And then other people would say, but what would that say about me? Right? Like what, what kind of human being do I want to be in the world?
0: Right. But that's where I felt like, like this question of mercy is what made me identify more with George or 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 sort of understand mm-hmm. his dilemma better, which is yeah. he didn't win. I mean, the the guy's going to live and go on and oppress and continue right. with his hatred and and will make life miserable for George and everyone who looks mm-hmm. like him for the rest of his days. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like George, in some ways, he wasn't. He had a moment of free will, but he wasn't totally free to make a choice. Right. He was, you know, his friends were there and he maybe felt guilt about letting someone die. And he he Mm -hmm. knew, you know, the 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 lesson to take from it is, well, you're a bigger man than he is. You're better than him. You didn't stoop to his level, but George is not totally happy about it. And he's kind of, um, you know, he doesn't accept the pats on the back and everything. You can tell that he's he's sort of furious that he was put in that position at all, because, you know, in, in some ways you could say he was a sucker. You know,
3: yeah, and especially for someone like the character of George Jefferson, right? right? Exactly. Yeah, you know, he's actually that kind of opposite of Archie Bunker, (laughs) right? So, um, you know, one would expect him to have not made that choice, given what we know about him. Yeah. So yeah, no no, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating.
0: Uh well, I want people, listeners to understand that as much as I got out of Mercy, this is just um scratching the surface. We we didn't even cover everything that was to cover with Mercy, but there's also these these other subjects like rage and resistance and and love and joy and you cover music and you cover food and community and your own stories of your life are just beautiful and moving. I, I really think this is a book people should check out. I think my listeners will, will really love it. But I, I just wanted to sort of close here and to say, why literature? So I mean this yeah. could be this could be sermons you could have looked at political speeches you could have looked at just mm-hmm. historical events or you know you could have thought your way into these concepts why do yeah. you think literature in particular Uh, opens these doors for you.
3: Sure. Well, you know, the the truth of the matter is that all those sort of forms and genres do find their way. I mean, I have one chapter that's mostly on political speeches, but they're not. They're not. They're political speeches written by people who are extraordinary writers. And that, I think, is the answer to why literature for me, it's language.
2: Mm. You
3: know, it's it's the power of language to you know and 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 you know, and the beauty of language, people who know how to craft and sculpt a sentence the way you know an artist might sculpt clay, yeah. um, just in such the the choice of word, the shape of a sentence, um, and I also say you know the pleasure,
2: yeah,
3: the pleasure of reading it, so that you know I, I think with literature, our lives are enriched in so many ways that We're smarter at the end of a book than we were when we started it because we know something we didn't know. But we've also had moments of, you know, heart-wrenching honesty that might be difficult, but moments of pleasure in the language, in the beauty of the language. That I think that's why, for me, literature was the way in.
2: Mm.
3: You know, it's there's so many reasons to read works of literature, and that even the political speeches are also works of literature. They end up in anthologies, the ones that I choose. There's certain ones. You know, there's a kind of grandeur of language that can also lift us, that can make us see our better selves, that can give us something to which to aspire. Mm. You know, that's why we used to Long for and listen to, like what is it? What is a John F. Kennedy speech going to be like?
2: Yeah. You know,
3: what is a Franklin Delano Roosevelt speech going to sound like? What is it? What is Obama going to say? You know, yeah. that that kind of oratory is also literary. Yeah.
0: Ah. Uh, well, the woman who put this book in my hand said, "I'm so glad you're going to interview her. She has so much wisdom to impart." And oh, I wow. agree. The book is Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. Farah Jasmine Griffin, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature.
3: Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you.
0: Okay, there we go. Farah Jasmine Griffin, my thanks to her for joining me. You see... You see, listeners, sometimes I promise and I worry that I overpromise, but I hope you'll agree with me that she is awesome. Her book is to put Read Until You Understand on your wish list or your list of books to buy for others this holiday season. And my thanks to Scott Carter, who's played Discord will be streaming online through December 19th, 2021 courtesy of the Philadelphia Lantern Theatre Company. You can check that out or if you're catching up later just Google Scott Carter Discord to see if there's a production coming near you. Speaking of promising and over promising and running the risk of that, we have a special couple of episodes coming up. Next week in particular our friend Lori Frankel is going to be here for a special treat for Thanksgiving week and we've got Forgotten Women of Literature number 6 coming up and lots of other great episodes in the works. I've got renewed energy people, which usually means something is about to go wrong. <laughs> but maybe it won't happen for a while this time. Maybe my worm has finally turned. Maybe I'll maybe I'll outlast the bad. Maybe I'll die before the next bad thing has time to hit me. One can only hope. I'm Jack Wilson, your inveterate hoper What was Bronson Alcott's line? I'm back to my usual vocation Hoping Well, there are worse things to be, I suppose or worse things to do than hope I'm Jack Wilson Speaking of worse things to be, there's one <laughs> I wouldn't wish being Jack Wilson on my worst enemy Or my best friend, or any of you Be yourself It's gotta be better than this But we go on, don't we? We go on. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.